Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. We love getting listener feedback, um, especially when it's complimentary. But we also like it when you guys ask very deep and probing questions or simply make requests of us. And we have one such request from Mike, who unfortunately did not include his last name. But Mike, if you hear this email and know it's you, write us back and we'll say your full name on our next podcast. So Mike writes... I really enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'd like to hear more topics about American history. However, why not try how Reconstruction worked or how slavery worked? These topics might be more contentious, but I think the discussions would be interesting to listen to. Well, Mike, we love American history, too, and we try to spread the love between all different continents and all different eras and civilizations, et cetera, et cetera, as long as we mention Thomas Jefferson in every podcast. (laughs) But we are going to talk about civil rights today, uh, the civil rights movement in particular, because... Uh, as, as most of you know, this was sort of a, a burgeoning movement beginning when people started noticing the the inherent evil in slavery. But it took a really, really long time for things to come full scale and for uh, blacks to be given their full civil rights. So it's a very complicated history, and we're going to do our best to cover most of it. That's right. And we're going to start back about uh, with the Jim Crow laws. Um during Reconstruction, uh, the southern states instituted rules, basically, that prevented blacks from taking advantage of the um, the freedom that they had just got. And uh, so they made rules that, that separated blacks and whites in restaurants, parks, and theaters, you name it, basically. And uh, this was uh, later legitimized by a Supreme Court uh, case called Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, and it really made it say, it said like separate but equal is constitutional. It's fine. You can make laws about it. And that's uh, really sad. And it's also really scary too because yeah. the constitution added the 14th amendment, which mm-hmm. made clear that citizenship was to be bestowed on freed slaves. That's and right. Full and equal. And that's where we have equal. And that's where they get the, the, the little nitpicky like, oh, right. it's equal. Sorry. I didn't mean to. Interrupt. Oh, no, no, no. You're fine. But the problem <laughs> with the 14th amendment is that it was never ratified by most of the southern states. Mm-hmm. And during reconstruction, the south actually had military members who came in to oversee that uh, they were upholding universal male suffrage, mm-hmm. and they weren't. And the problem with the Jim Crow laws that Jane was alluding to earlier is that they made things inherently difficult for freed black men. Sure, they were supposed to be enfranchised, but mm-hmm. they couldn't vote because when they got to the voting booths, they were hit with poll taxes or they were hit with literacy tests or all these other tricks that white Southerners had up their sleeves to keep them from participating in society. That's right. And obviously, Obviously, these blacks were at a disadvantage, um, at a disadvantage because they were uh, deprived of the education that it would took to have literacy at the, that time. So the southern southerners knew exactly what they were doing. And they did. It's uh, completely unfair rules. Uh, and it wasn't just about voting. They also banned interracial marriages, mm-hmm. and they segregated public places like schools and parks and different modes of transportation. And I'm sure you're all incredibly familiar with the Rosa Parks story, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But another example of that, like like buses and, and uh, right. vehicles people would take, essentially, to get to these locales that, mm-hmm. when they arrived, they would find were separate but not equal. And we know that lynching was a constant threat. The Ku Klux Klan was alive and well. And the problem with these these lynch mobs and uh, 
other violent members of white society was that when they were called to court, they were essentially reviewed by all white juries who mm-hmm. typically found them innocent. So it was just a, a constant cycle yeah, of, of and wrong a lot of, and wrong. Yeah, and a lot of this violence stemmed from just the strict rules even in their society that they formed. Like if you, if a black person looked at a white person the wrong way, it could instigate violence that would later be acquitted by an all-white jury. So I want to get back to what Jane was saying earlier about Plessy versus Ferguson, because this is such an important precedent to the whole civil rights movement. And that happened back in 1890. Louisiana law had forced blacks to ride in segregated rail cars. And under the 14th Amendment, that really didn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. because blacks were supposed to have access to all the civil you know, rights and, and civil Liberties that the whites had too. So Plessy tested this boarding a car that was intended for white people. Plessy was just one eighth black. Yeah, that's very interesting. The but fact that he's just only one eighth. One eighth, but mm-hmm. was still arrested. And a local judge declared him guilty. And the U.S. Supreme Court, wildly enough, upheld that decision. And they were the ones who said that separate but equal accommodations did not infringe upon 14th Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. And how many times have we heard that refrain throughout, you know, civil rights history, separate but equal, separate but yeah. equal? That was ultimately, you know, this thing that set all the wheels in motion for the mm-hmm. whole movement. And that was not overturned until 1954, which I'm sure you all have heard of the Brown versus Board of Education case. And uh, that finally, um, the nail in the coffin to Plessy, saying that separate uh, is inherently unequal. And so it violated the 14th Amendment. And the thing about these historic cases is really the, the people behind them. And, you know, again, Brown versus Board of Education, probably a, a court name you've heard tossed around. But to really know that the backstory, mm-hmm. an eight-year-old girl named Linda Brown, she had to ride a school bus about five miles to a segregated school in her hometown of Topeka. Meanwhile, a school for white children was just a few blocks away from her house, and it was better staffed, had better equipment, better books, things like this. And so her father, the Reverend Oliver Brown, decided he was going to try to enroll her at that school. It just made sense overall, and he was denied. So he went to the NAACP, and they essentially kept taking the case a little bit further and a little bit further. Yeah, and they got other families involved, too, to help um, with the case as well. They did. And again, this was ruled on the precedent of Plessy versus Ferguson, separate, not being equal. And here Mm -hmm. is a very, very stark example of how it's not. I mean, you could look at these two schools side by side, the staff that was there, um, what the children were entitled to, the type of education they were getting, and it couldn't be more obvious. That's right. And... um, it delivered sort of a final blow against Plessy because there were court cases beforehand that started to chip away at Plessy. And um, to give you an example, there was a case in 46 where they banned segregation on interstate bus tra- travel. That's going to come into play later, but it didn't quite, it wasn't quite the nail in the coffin that Brown versus Board was. So when Brown and the NAACP appealed the local judge's decision, mm-hmm. That upheld Plessy versus Ferguson. They went to the Supreme Court, and like Jane said, in May 1954, that was when they said that separate but equal was unconstitutional, and thus began the desegregation of schools. And you'd think, I mean, obviously this was a major um, step in the civil rights movement, but it didn't immediately make things better. 
if anything, it sort of made hostilities worse, in the South at least, between blacks and whites. And to give you an example, if you've heard of the Emmett Till case, it's an extremely sad case. It happened just a few months after the decision was released about Brown versus Board of Education. It had to do with a just a 14-year-old African-American boy who, um, he lived in Chicago at the time, but he was visiting the South in Money, Mississippi, um, to visit relatives. And he was there for a few days, and he was uh, hanging out with his friends, um, and teasing them. He's showing them a picture of this white girl and saying, oh, that's my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. They didn't believe him. And they said, oh, why don't you go flirt with the white girl inside the store there? And so he did. And uh, this caused a lot of problems. It really did. Uh, because uh, just a couple nights later, he was kidnapped from the house where he was staying. Right. And he disappeared until his body was found drowned in a river. There was barbed wire around his neck. There Mm -hmm. was a bullet hole in his skull. He had been so badly mutilated and and tortured that his body was unrecognizable except for a ring that he was wearing. And that's how they identified him. And it was very obvious who and why uh, this murder happened. Um, Somebody was knocking on the door in the middle of the night asking to see the boy and the uncle, the person he was visiting, uh, you know, he couldn't resist them, and uh, it end- it was the uh, husband of the girl that the that Emmett had been flirting with, and he had come back from a trip and and found out what happened, and found out the story, and immediately went over and and uh, took the boy and put him in the car and drove away. And this man, Rod Bryant, he was working in conjunction with the owner of the store mm-hmm. where the incident took place, and that was J M Millam. And to be specific, for what we know, exactly what. Uh, Emmett said to the woman was bye-bye baby when he turned to leave. Right. So again, not exactly damning words, but in in this case, you know, they really were for him. And again, this is another instance of an all-white jury not finding the guilty parties guilty. And if you look at pictures from, you know, Roy Bryant and J.M. Millam in court, I think Roy Bryant is sitting there, you know, looking mm. completely nonchalant, smoking a cigarette, yeah. as though he hasn't a care in the world. He, he knew yeah. that he would be acquitted. And Emmett Till's mother, obviously, you know, one, one can assume she must have just been heartbroken, but she, I think, very valiantly turned this into an opportunity to advance the civil rights movement. Sure. And at the boy's funeral, she insisted upon an open casket. And again, Remember, his body was so mutilated when they found it, they couldn't recognize him. He'd been in the river for a couple of days. It must have been a horrific sight to see. And I think that that is really what stirred, especially younger generations Mm -hmm. of black Americans to say, this is wrong. I mean, we knew it was wrong all along, but there's a big difference between a a schoolgirl being denied entrance to a school Mm -hmm. and this sort of very violent atrocity that's occurring under our watch. That's right. I think it really awakened everybody, the whole nation, really, because I I remember reading that the image of his mutilated body was printed in a magazine at the time. So uh, not even just the people who went and saw his body in person, but all around the country, people who bought that magazine could see um, how disgusting this was. And it's interesting also to compare Emmett Till himself growing up in Chicago was not used to the ways of the South and the unspoken rules that were going on there. And so really, you know, it uh, illustrated for everyone very clearly the difference and how not even a teenage boy is safe from the violence. But the South, and, you know, we're, we're Southerners, and, and we live in the mm-hmm. South today, and House of Works is in Atlanta, and so, you know, we're, we're aware of Southern culture and, and attitudes, so we don't mean to constantly be, be pointing fingers at the South, but this is yeah. where all the activity was brewing. It's important to note, too, that it was a very very stalwart section of the country, even mm-hmm. though these laws were being passed, even though desegregation in schools was made mandatory, like 
like you saw or heard when Jane and I podcasted about the Emancipation Proclamation, it takes a long time for these things to seep into the collective mindset. And even if people know it's the law in black and white, trying to get people to embrace something, you know, with their minds and with their attitudes takes a really long time. And especially when you have general unrest among populations, you know, that sort of boils up into a mob situation. And Mm -hmm. that's why, very famously, back in September 1957, President Dwight Eisenhower sent 1,000 paratroopers to oversee nine black students entering Little Rock High School in Arkansas because he knew. He Mm -hmm. knew it would happen. That's right. And this was, again, a very dramatic scene, like on on the television and everything for the whole nation to see how bad things were. Yes. And... So we see the sort of violence being committed against the black community. And how did they respond? Well, with civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. And this is perhaps one of the wisest maneuvers I think any group of people has, has really made because to fight back with violence, with nonviolence is a, a very shocking and I yeah. think brave thing to do. It sort of inherited the ideas of Gandhi. Uh, uh, very popular at that time. And one of the uh, examples of civil disobedience that was very popular and effective were these things called sit-ins, where um, black youths usually would go into all-white establishments, or at least establishments that had all-white sections, such as a counter that only whites could sit at, and they would ask to be served. Um, And they had a code of nonviolence where, like, even if they were being hit or whatever, they could not respond with any violence, and uh, they couldn't uh, insult anyone else, et cetera, et cetera. One of the most famous cases of civil disobedience that we mentioned earlier and said we'd come back to is Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. And this happened in Montgomery, Alabama. It was December 1st, 1955. After a, a day of, of work, she sat down on the bus and when enough whites boarded that she was, you know, being forced by code to give up her seat, mm-hmm. she refused. And I think a lot of people think that she did this on the spur of the moment. And Yeah, it was no sudden flight of no, stubbornness. It wasn't. <laughs> and thinking that she very, you know, resolutely refused to give up her seat, I think, paints her as a, a larger-than-life figure. And while she certainly was a heroic figure in the sure. movement, she had gone to courses on yeah. civil disobedience. I don't know. I think that raises my her estimation in my eyes. It's like, oh, that's, you know, she, this was planned out, and she had the guts to do this. It wasn't yeah. just sort of she was having a bad day, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So from that perspective, she's even even larger, larger yeah. than life. So, and this was actually part of a, a bus boycott movement. Mm. Well, this has started it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, activists uh, in Montgomery, the, c- the city where this happened, they started a Montgomery Improvement Association, and this uh, it started a boycott, and this lasted for over a year um, until the courts finally made the city um, desegregate, and it was a huge success. Um, you know, it was, a, it was one of the first big successes for the civil rights movement, uh, especially the the um, civil disobedience movement as well. And this is when a famous figure, Martin Luther King Jr., came into play as well. He was a pastor in a church in Montgomery during the time of the boycott. And um, when that was successful, actually, I should mention that during the boycott, he was faced with a lot of danger as well. His home was actually bombed that year when he wasn't there, I believe. And um, once the boycott was finally successful, he was elected the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Council. And this uh, focused on peaceful po- protest and became a, a major force in the movement. 
And King didn't stay in Montgomery. He ended up moving to Atlanta for a while, and then Mm -hmm. we know that eventually he went over to Birmingham. But while he was starting, and and it was the sort of burgeoning effort of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we really see this rolling effort with with bus boycotts and nationwide protests and and sit-ins and all of this to sort of gently buck the Supreme Court's you know, ruling and, and decisions and to really draw attention to what was happening in the South and to point out, you know, we're the ones who have these rights. They're being taken away from us. They're not being honored. And mm-hmm. we're not fighting back like the white community. You know, we're, we're doing this very, very gently, as it were. Yeah, that's true. And he faced a lot of criticism from both sides. Um, was surprising to me uh, was the fact that fellow pastors in, in Birmingham were attacking him for being too extremist. And he wrote, um, he, one time he was arrested. Well, he was arrested a few times, but at one point he was in the Birmingham jail and he wrote the infamous letter from Birmingham jail to his fe- fellow um, pastors who were criticizing him. And one of my favorite lines from that famous document is, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. And I think that's very inspiring um, personally. And I, one of my favorite lines. My favorite line is, justice too long is justice denied. That's a great one too. Yeah. yeah. And I think it really speaks to King's perspective sure. on the movement. So while we have King and civil disobedience going on and, and all of the, the followers that are following him, we also should mention another group, the Freedom Riders. Mm-hmm. And on May 4th, 1961, this was a, a group of people of several different races, and they were going to make sort of a, a cross-country or cross-south, really, statement. That's yeah. right. And they were testing some rules that, that were recently instituted. Like I mentioned before that as far as early as uh, 1946, there was a there was a uh, ban on segregation on interstate bus travel. Well, in 1960, there was another decision related to this where they extended uh, the rule to bus terminals. Um, and so the terminals themselves had to be desegregated as well. And so the, this group of freedom riders that Candace was just talking about, um, whites and blacks banded together to really test this ruling. And they kind of knew what they were doing. They knew that the South oh, yeah. was not ready for this. They knew what they were getting into. And they yeah. rode from Washington, D.C., New Orleans, mm-hmm. and along the way, they were beaten, their buses were stoned, their tires were slashed, 300 of them were arrested, and the bus never finished the trip. That's right. It, was, it sounded like such a, a scary uh, thing to go on, this crusade that they went on, because they were beaten, you know, they, their bus was firebombed. I can't even imagine, like, how scary it was to be there. But... The bright side is that their efforts caught the attention of the Kennedy administration. So after Kennedy started turning an eye to what was going on, he decided that he was going to take a more active role. You mm-hmm. know, As we know, the Supreme Court hadn't been exactly up to snuff, so Kennedy comes into play, and he proposes the Civil Rights Bill. And to show support for this bill, 250,000 people of all races participated in the march on Washington. And that is when King made the famous I Have a Dream speech. That's right. And... Um Actually, JFK was assassinated before the bill could finally go through, but luckily his successor, LBJ, um, he, he helped push it along because he knew it was important. And not only the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, but the Voting Rights Act of the, a year later. Um, the first one forbid discrimination of in uh, public accommodations. And so, like we said before, this, this happened sort of with the Supreme Court cases, but it was up to the executive branch to really enforce it. And so these were really important. Um, and also what, what they did was they... Uh, 
uh, threatened to withhold federal funds from communities where they persisted in segregation. And that was a real key in getting things moving. So as all of this is happening, Jane mentioned before media coverage, and I think it's really important to mention that that was such a valuable tool in the civil rights movement, having those pictures splashed across you know, the front pages of newspapers, having them on TV, mm-hmm. being able to see all of those people in Washington, there to support the bill. And as, as we know, the graphic images of, of Emmett Till helped, the images of Martin Luther King, the images of the arrests and the protests. And people's minds really, I think, began to change about the black community and the bills that were coming across to support them. And something else that I think really helped out were the children's protests mm-hmm. that took place. And it came to a point at which... There just wasn't enough time and enough manpower to have adults constantly protesting because, after all, you know these these are parents, these these are workers with with homes and bills to pay. So they asked children to participate in the protests, mm-hmm. and even children were arrested, if you can believe that. And at one point, the city came in with fire hoses and tried hosing them down to get them, yeah. you know, off off the grounds. And the force from the fire hoses was so strong, so much water pressure that children were like swept to their feet. They were knocked down, and people saw these images and were just outraged. So when the time came that the bills were passed by by Johnson, I think people were more ready to accept that. Yeah, it is time for this because you're committing atrocities not only toward grown people, but mm-hmm. young children as well. Another really interesting story that had to do with young black children has to do with a, a church that was bombed in Birmingham. This happened in 63. It was a year before the Civil Rights Act. But um, in Birmingham, there's this major church, and it was a target because it was a meeting place for a lot of civil rights leaders like uh, Martin Luther King. And members of the KKK actually uh, threw bombs inside. Uh, I think it, it only killed four people, but those four people happened to be young girls, like 11 and 14, I believe. And uh, it's it was also a terrible image, a very starking image to see. And so I think that there was a time when the black community was really trying to uphold Martin Luther King's standards of civil disobedience and nonviolence. But after a while, after these atrocities continued to, you know, pummel their efforts and try to break away at, at their morale and their cause, there came a point when people said this this might not be working for us anymore. And keep in mind, this isn't the entire community, mm-hmm. but we're talking about a, a subset of the That's right. And like I said before, uh, King actually faced uh, criticism from both sides. Some people thought he was too extremist. Some people thought he wasn't extremist enough. Yeah, that he and, was a pacifist. Right, exactly. And um, Malcolm X was one such person represented the more radical side of the movement. Um, he actually called some of King's tactics criminal. He said it was criminal for, for King to teach nonviolence in the face of violence. And and you can see his point that it's like it, it seems to be ineffective. And you can look at the progress and you can say, oh, look at these acts that were passed, et cetera, et cetera. But look at all the violence that hap- that's happening, too. And we need to do more. And I think there came a point when violence was, was met with violence. We think of the Watts riots that occurred yeah. in L.A. And so we have these two almost competing legacies. If you look at the Malcolm X legacy and the Martin Luther King legacy and compare them side by side, this violence versus nonviolence. And we know that even though these bills were passed in the late 60s or the mid-60s even, that wasn't the end. Yeah, and there the was still injustice going on. And going back to your favorite line from... From King, justice too long delayed is justice denied. You know, to a lot of people, all this violence going on was justice delayed, you know, and they felt right. that we needed to do more. And that's an understandable 
uh, sentiment to have. And I don't think you can ever wrap up any discussion about the civil rights movement because I think that there are still plenty of arguments to exist that it's still a movement that is going on today. I think that when Obama was elected president of the United States, I think that really clinched in a lot of people's minds. Maybe we are moving toward the end of the civil rights movement. Maybe this mm-hmm. is an end cap to a struggle for true equality. Yes, so I think it will yeah. be really interesting to to watch how our nation continues to embrace other other races and, and evolve together. And I certainly don't want to, you know, project any of my beliefs onto this. I think it's up for our listeners ultimately to decide how they feel about, you know, how history has ended or just begun or is still evolving. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, history is a very organic and, and living thing. And maybe the civil rights movement isn't over. Maybe the timeline is only in the middle. Yeah, as long as we're not going backwards, I think. That's, yeah, that's important. Exactly. But obviously, there's so much more to learn about civil rights and Martin Luther King and other famous historical figures like Malcolm X. So you can read much more about them at Housestuff works.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com let us know what you think send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com <laughs>